0: Hello and welcome to The Charter, Queen's University Belfast's social charter podcast, highlighting the positive impact our students and staff have made and continue to make on our society. My name's Morris McCartney, and in this episode we'll be looking at the potential of social enterprise and the social solidarity economy as a way of empowering marginalised people and of achieving goals that go beyond the realm of the economic Later, I'll be talking to Professor Brendan Murta of the School of Natural and Built Environment about his research into these issues, including his work with social enterprises in Belfast. Before that, I speak to Dr. Fiona Murphy and Dr. Evi khatsipane Yotidu of the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, about their anthropological research, and not least, about their work with a social enterprise project involving Syrian refugees in Turkey. Speaking of which, <laughs> No, I'm sorry to say we didn't get to record this in Turkey. That was a recording made by Fiona Murphy when she was last out there. In fact, we didn't get to travel anywhere. We're in (laughs) lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic. And by the way, for that reason, please forgive any problems with the sound quality. I think I can just hear my washing machine going here somewhere in the background, but we'll not worry about that. Um, Anyway, good afternoon, uh, Fiona and Evie. Good to meet you, even online like this.
1: Good afternoon, Maurice.
2: Hello, Maurice. Thank you.
0: Hello. and uh, <laughs> This is a bit unfamiliar, um, but I guess that just illustrates the pandemic has kind of affected pretty much everyone and, and, and everything. It's been unsettling. People will be experiencing a sense of loss and uh, dislocation. But of course, lots of people have already been living in such unsettled and unfamiliar conditions from long before the outbreak of the virus, And I know you've been working with some of them. So maybe if you could just first introduce yourselves and then tell us a little bit about your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I'll I'll start. Um, My name is uh, Fiona Murphy, and I'm based in anthropology in in HAP. And um, over the past number of years, we have worked very closely on uh, migration and displacement. And we're both um, anthropologists of displacement and conceptual work uh, has been very much anchored in themes of loss, trauma, memory, immobility, mobility, silence and and crisis and um, this was my work started off examining these themes uh, with indigenous Australians who had been removed from their families and institutionalised known as stolen generations and there I looked at kind of the politicisation of trauma and loss, uh, those kinds of themes Uh, and later this was followed by a number of projects uh, where I focused very much on the everyday lives of asylum seekers and refugees on the island uh, of Ireland Um, and since 2000 Evie and I have collaborated very closely on a number of uh, different projects with a conceptual focus of loss and displacement.
0: So, yes, uh, Evie, I think you've also worked on memory and loss and so forth. Do you want to tell us...
2: Yeah, so um, my name is Evi Hadzipanagatidou. I'm an anthropologist as well in the School of HAP. Um, I worked before um, this project with Fiona on the politics of memory and loss, migration, conflict, violence, especially in Cyprus and the Cypriot diaspora in the UK. Uh, So through this collaboration with Fiona, we carried on researching some of the themes we engaged with in our previous research, um, this time in the context of Syrian refugees in Turkey. Uh, but also with an applied focus on the politics of labor and economic survival for refugees in the city of Istanbul. Uh, going back to your original question, uh, as you said, Maurice, yes, anthropologists, we, although we understand what is happening now in the context of the current pandemic as a critical and historical point, We're also quite keen on highlighting some continuities um, that the current crisis logic sometimes doesn't allow us to consider. Um, So for instance, for a lot of people we have been working with, um, confinement, lack of mobility, uncertainty, isolation, lack of access to resources, and multiple levels of loss have been longstanding issues uh, and not necessarily a new predicament, as you've already said. So more specifically, Fiona and I uh, began in 2015 developing different projects through multiple workshops in London, Istanbul and Amman and focusing on the issues of loss and displacement Uh, and we developed a closer connection with the Center for Migration Research in Bilgi and pursued further projects on the politics of labour and refugees in Istanbul. Uh, In a British Academy project, one of our most recent projects entitled Counting Our Losses, Refugee Social Entrepreneurships in Turkey, we began a project of engagement with different kinds of social enterprises, refugee social enterprises in Istanbul. And that was in order to understand the interconnections between loss, labor, and how refugees in Turkey try to construct sustainable livelihoods. Now, we're looking at this as a solidarity economy, um, and I know you'll be talking about this later on with Brandon in the podcast, Uh, but we also apply um, critical lens um, um, in the ways we understand social enterprises, Uh, and we question especially how global forms of neoliberalism have allowed this idea of being entrepreneurial to permeate multiple dimensions of social relations, labour relations, kinship, and many other kinds of human relationships. In other words, um, and given that there's an increasing emphasis on uh, social enterprises among refugees, and this comes up in state policy and humanitarian discourses um, as a means means of economic survival, We have also become quite interested in questioning these projects and especially looking at um, gender perspectives and in the ways in which women and men and also children, um, some of our um, closest research partners in Turkey, for instance, study child labor as well. So how women and men and children refugees are drawn into and participate in this type of of economic activities.
0: So you're you're working with uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey. Uh, maybe, Fiona, you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that, the, the example in, in Turkey. It's in Istanbul is well. Yep, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And as Evie has said, uh, I suppose, first of all, we have been doing this research through um, a very enriching partnership with Bilgi University in, in Istanbul for the British Academy project. Um, so we've been able to conduct a, a wide variety of research forms in, in Istanbul. Uh, turkey is a is an interesting but challenging place to do research uh, to date. The country is the largest receiver of Syrian refugees with approximately four point one million now living in the country, uh, the majority of which live in major um, urban centers so for the most part uh, the kind of dominant representations of refugees that have tended towards um, images of, of an encampment are, are are now quite quite different with the largest sort of percentage of displaced, uh, now living in in major urban centres. Obviously these numbers have had enormous uh, political, social, economic impact on Uh, both refugees and the local communities in in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And I suppose something else that has really featured very large, uh, particularly in recent months, is growing anti Syrian resentment. And this is a topic which our Bilgi partners, uh, Pinar Mercy and Emre Erdogan, really examine very closely in their work and this
2: intersects with um, our project uh, as well.
0: If you maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Um, yeah, just to add to what uh, Fiona has already started explaining. So one of the major complexities uh, in Turkey is um, the way in which Syrians have been categorized. Um, um, and I'm talking legally here, mm-hmm. uh, but also, of course, politically and socially. But um, Turkey initially received Syrian refugees as guests. And that was, uh, had to do with a particular legal framework at the time and later amended their legislation to allow a status of temporary protection, but protection is the key word here, as there remain major restrictions to refugees acquiring citizenship. Um, Of course, this has further implications for working permits, and these are very hard for refugees to get, very limited. Um, And this ultimately means that many Syrians in Turkey remain either unemployed or underemployed, and continue to be major targets for exploitative employers. And so this is where our research has tried producing insights in terms of seeing the ways in which social enterprises come in uh, within these larger labor restrictions, as if you want solutions for refugees in order to be able to construct construct, um, sustainable livelihoods, outside the other sort of labor, the the, the broader labor market.
0: So, and these are social enterprises, these are started by the refugees themselves, is that...
2: Yeah, so, I mean, again, uh, the, as you know, the concept of social entrepreneurship is quite broad. However, in this particular project, uh, we have focused very much on the social activist, grassroots end of the continuum of social entrepreneurship. So we've been focusing very much on refugee-led social enterprises. And this is largely because these are the main types of social enterprises that we've been able to do closer field work with, uh, but also the social enterprises that give us a a much more bottom-up understanding of what's happening in this broader context of social enterprises in Turkey.
0: So, there's a particular one that you told me about, Nitstanbull, which sounds intriguing. It's an interesting name and uh, a very interesting concept. Maybe could you... Give us an idea about how Nidstanbull came together and what it does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a little bit of background here. So as as Eddie has said, as anthropologists, we tend towards working on a number of cases in a very in-depth, kind of engaged ethnographic fashion. So Nidstanbull really um, became one of the key sites for us, uh, amongst another uh, number of other examples. Um, So just... In terms of background and how Istanbul was founded, um, it was founded in 2014 by Malika Brown, a British writer and expat who had lived in Syria and Turkey for a number of years. And as Syrians started to arrive in large numbers to Istanbul, where she was living at that time, um, she felt the need to reach out and develop, uh, I suppose, some kind of support uh, and assistance. And, and so she developed this idea of a, of a, of a crafting business. So while Nistambul is a, a social enterprise, I suppose it's also very much a story of loss and recovery, of rebuilding and reconnecting in an attempt to kind of create a, a more more sustainable livelihood under the spectre of the Syrian conflict and, and issues of, I suppose, rightlessness more broadly in, in, in Turkey. Um, mm. So what, what do Nistambul do? Well, primarily uh, the knitters produce uh, baby knitwear Beautiful, delicate, colourful uh, baby grows, pinafores, jumpers—that's uh, just to name a few things. They sell these on on Etsy and and their webpage, which is nistambul.com dot com, and they have a very good strong presence on 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 Instagram and and Facebook. Uh, so if all the listeners out there can get on and um, maybe try and support them that would be we'll great we'll put a link
0: on our we'll put a link on our webpage to to that i think yeah
1: that would be that would be super and as and with some of the other things that they do is they also produce goods for other social enterprises and businesses just a, a few examples are, are they make these absolutely gorgeous kind of trendy beanies uh for an organization called Ishkar. that's i-s-h and that's a really interesting kind of enterprise that sells uh uh very beautiful craftsmanship from war torn countries they they make these beautiful cream uh, uh, pram blankets that they sell on willow and the bear and tank tops on on a site called five boys clothing and and in addition to that kind of um, stuff, they also have some of their goods displayed uh, in an Imperial war museum exhibition called syria uh, conflict uh, explored and of course i can 't forget to mention their bright pink uh pussy hats for the feminists in your life so um so that's my sales pitch on on behalf of 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 knits and Bull. but one of the the things i suppose that's worth thinking about here is that the consumer uh of these goods is ultimately not just buying a baby grow or a hat um but very much a product uh that's infused with uh the stories of the of of the knitters the story of conflict the story of survival the story of refuge and um one of the women actually described it to us as I'm just going to quote her here as wanting people in other places to understand some of the Syrian experience of war and suffering by buying her, her knitwear. So in essence, um, these are very storied products. And I think that's what's very valuable. So very much so knit um in this regard is is much more than a than a social enterprise. And I think one of the things that we're trying to get at in our work, is it is in that messy but kind of textured space in between social entrepreneurships and individuals striving to live their lives in different ways that gives form to um, all of these new kinds of socialities and, and solidarities.
0: Um, I think there's, al- there's almost a sense in which uh, the word uh, knit Stanbul and the idea of knitting is, um, is a kind of a good metaphor for exactly what they're doing. You know, they're sort of knitting together and creating out of their losses a new uh, way of going forward. You mentioned the word loss a little earlier on. I know you use that as an overarching theme for some of your work to think about these things. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that idea of loss, the psychological, social, even physical loss. I mean, obviously that's something a lot of people are going through at the minute in terms of this uh, pandemic, but... uh, Obviously, these are people who have been been there and uh, are finding new ways and creative ways of, of overcoming or raising yeah, those
2: um, Yeah, exactly. As you said, Maurice, um, a loss for us is one of the sort of gui- guiding concepts in, uh, in our projects, in our writing. And um, we're very keen on emphasizing that loss um, is also situated in a broader context of historical, economical and social political processes. In other words, um, and we see loss in this project specifically, not only as individual, not only as a personal condition, uh, but as a social and political relationship too. How we experience loss, in other words, depends on the societies, systems and hierarchies of inequalities we live in um, and how different sort of um, needs around loss and how different reparations around loss are addressed and in that sense, although in the current circumstances we all find ourselves collectively and personally experiencing loss, Um, We have to remember that this loss is not shared equally and equitably across the world. Um, We see at the moment that some current responses to the pandemic, for instance, around closing borders and restricting migration, uh, raise and will raise further challenges and restrictions for refugees already dealing with multiple losses.
0: The women of Nisambul then have managed to turn around some of those losses and uh, as I say, knit together in a sort of a, a new uh, enterprise for themselves and, and which has also got benefits for other people. So maybe I wonder if there's lessons that the women of Istanbul can teach all of us in these turbulent uh, times.
1: Y- yes, absolutely. I mean, many things. But I, I guess how I'd like to maybe think about answering this is by getting the listeners to uh dive on to the Knitstanbull webpage. That's if you're sitting within arm's reach of a of a device, knitstumbull.com. If you're not, um I, I'm gonna describe what you would see when you get on the page. Uh so the first thing you will see on the landing page is an image of a condescent orange and black crocheted child's life jacket. It's a very beautiful piece of craftwork, and it was produced by one of the knitters, a beer Turk for World Refugee Day in 2019. If you scroll down beneath the image of the life jacket in a bright red box Nistanbul has written the following about why they produce this i 'm just going to read this for, for those of you who haven 't been able to go onto the web page. Uh, they say we wanted to illustrate with a symbol of the refugee crisis, how some refugees are staying afloat thanks to their skills. in the case of Nistanbul, these skills are crochet and knitting, and a few of our ladies sustain their families entirely by their work first. This life jacket is currently in London and it is for sale to raise cash for our project and then they give a, a, an email address. So I suppose certainly the point of trying to make here through the life jacket is this is very much an emblem of what many of the Nistambul women have come through and it evokes the many ways in which their work teaches us about how we should think about building new solidarities whilst recognising that we can do so even whilst we don't hold everything in common. Uh, and I think if ever... There was a moment for thinking about a, a politics of, of everybody than it is right now and this is already very much embedded in Istanbul's ethos of connecting and rebuilding uh, life worlds anchored in, in loss and survival. And I suppose whilst the current moment is not the time to be speculative or, or predictive, I think it is a time to imagine a picture of the world that we want to work towards and, and Istanbul really provides a, a super example and, and ultimately I think a lesson about how this particular social enterprise has managed to imbue a larger ethos of unethics of refuge, encounter, and, and solidarity and their material outputs. Um, I suppose all key ethics of being, always, uh, of course, but most especially right now.
2: Yeah, um, as uh, Fiona said, you know, us anthropologists actually were in a position through long-term ethnographic work and engaging with people in all this alternative context to actually show how people have been dealing with um, different conditions of um, loss in um, multiple and sometimes creative and innovative ways. And definitely uh, this particular case of Istanbul is an example of creativity uh, and hope and solidarity. And I just, wanted to finish by saying, though, that um, social enterprises provide the space for that, and what our research has has shown is that uh, they do offer the refugees a potential pathway for economic survival. However, uh, we have to remember that um, social entrepreneurship also exists in a context where the broader narrative of the entrepreneurial refugee places a strong emphasis on productivity and therefore reducing the individual to their labor uh, in order to validate their worth and presence in a given host country. Um, There's also this emphasis on the economic resilience of refugees that can be read as a state attempt at deferring the responsibility of addressing the protected crisis situations of asylum seekers and refugees. And also sometimes the idea of social entrepreneurship works to undermine the continued uncertainties and anxieties that refugees face beyond the acquisition of work permit. So what we want to say is that as much as we want to celebrate these sort of projects, uh, what our research also shows is that uh, social entrepreneurship projects like Istanbul uh, cannot be sustainable uh, if they're not done within a broader context of refugee support of support infrastructure and a system of social justice
0: so it sounds like there's plenty of work still to be done out there but uh, thank you very much for uh, drawing this wonderful project to our attention and um, uh, best of luck for the next stages whatever they may be so dr murphy and dr do thank you very much thank you very much
2: thank you <laughs> thank you
0: Good afternoon, Dr. Brendan Murda. Good to see you, uh, albeit uh, at a remove where we're doing this obviously under uh, lockdown conditions because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I just wanted to ask you, you've written about the social and solidarity economy. Maybe you could explain, first of all, what you mean by that and outline how that looks different from what we think of as the, the normal economy, if you like.
3: Okay, well, the, the social and solidarity economy um, is remarkably close to the mainstream, what we would consider private economy. It's it's made up of firms, social enterprises we call them, that trade services and facilities for profit. So they're there in a commercial market, selling goods, selling services in the same way as a private business would. But there are a number of important differences to it. Firstly, whilst they make profit, the profit must be reinvested into social or ethical purposes, usually into some benefit group Charitable objective or even into the company itself to strengthen its business position Secondly, it, it doesn't have dividends. It doesn't have um, Shareholders it has stakeholders. It's run by a board that represents the benefit of interest and for a lot of Organizations that is people from the community who, do, who decide what is important for them in terms of goods and services and how that be should be used but like this the mainstream economy Advanced social economies have their own banks and finance institutions, a lot of them are supported with very good intermediary networks to support skills, legal services, a lot have very good investment in university research and and, and applied knowledge, training, education up to degree, postgraduate and even PhD level Um, and and it has its own it it, it has its own investment regime with specialist social finance providers to help capitalise these forms of business. So we we tend to see it as something that looks and sounds like the mainstream economy, but is for a social or ethical purpose.
0: How big are we talking about? I'm just wondering what sort of scale are we talking about in terms of as a proportion, if you like, or whatever you want to put it, of the the so-called normal economy?
3: Yeah, yeah. the size of the social economy varies a great deal depending on where you are in the world uh, and how much governments, either at national or local level, uh, invest in it. So in somewhere like the Basque Country, it's quite strong. Ten um, percent of people work in social enterprises. In Northern Ireland and in the UK generally, that tends to be lower. We reckon somewhere between 4 and 6% of employment is in social enterprises. It's nevertheless significant and it does add value to the economy, particularly in stubborn problems, hard to reach groups, and in activities that the private sector isn't delivering for. Um, but in areas where it is big, in areas like Emilia Romano in Italy, or the Basque Country in Spain or Quebec in Canada, governments have invested and really scaled up the social economy and social enterprises to the point that they have their own banks they some of them have their own universities some have their own legal intermediaries and specialists and they can be quite a large component of the overall economy itself
0: I wonder is it, uh, is it growing across the, the globe
3: the, the social economy is growing significantly in, in response to a number of factors I, I think Firstly, the uh, financial crash in 2008 made a lot of us think about what's the economy for and and why are some businesses making spectacular profits, creating massive wealth um, inequalities, particularly in in developing countries. And and so we started to get into this idea about who benefits from the economy, why do we have an economy, and and, and how do these other social benefits from economic activity become distributed across, across the globe. A lot of countries are trying to disinvest service provision from the public sector into the independent sector and have grown it for that reason and a lot of communities have decided they're going to help themselves and and in areas where they have the right regulatory framework the Basque Country is a very good example of it. Local community projects have been able to to grow often very small charitable businesses now into quite spectacular conglomerates. So we're seeing social, cultural, political and economic drivers behind a significant rise in the social economy and social enterprises in particular, which is a global phenomenon. It's happening in the global south, in India and Asia. South Korea is a massive example of how it has become a really important cornerstone of of the mainstream economy. It's happening in North America, the UK and, and in particularly in continental Europe.
0: But well, maybe we're a little bit behind the curve, as it were, in here in Northern Ireland. But
3: that leads me to uh,
0: my next question, which is to ask you. I know you've been working with some of the organisations in this sector here in Belfast. So maybe if you could give us a couple of examples and uh, set out some of the successes and maybe some of the challenges they faced.
3: Yeah, we, we've had a recent example of this. We've just completed a piece of research Uh, funded by the Social Investment Fund in in, in Northern Ireland, along with a social enterprise intermediary, LEDCOM, who support um, cooperatives and and, and social businesses. Um, And that was working with 22 businesses in North Belfast, an an, an area that has suffered severe economic restructuring, um, a lot of territoriality and interfacing, and very high rates of poverty. And those 22 businesses are across the spectrum. You've got very large social enterprises like Ashton that provide childcare and training. They've a turnover of around 8 million, but they have about um, 200 staff. They've 10 million worth of assets. You know, you've big recognisable social enterprises, right down to Clifton House, which is a heritage organisation, uh, one of the oldest and, and uh, most prized buildings in Belfast that are turning it now into a heritage centre, plus conference and Um, um, recreation uh, facilities and right down to very very small scale groups. The hub for example in York Street provides training for returning to work, allowing women to return to work in particular uh, in, in the textiles trade and have strong links with Crusaders football club because in those areas there's often very very little other than that type of community infrastructure and they although they're small have been a significant agent of change in those areas. They create jobs they create facilities and services, often to underserved communities who, who can't buy these things off the private sector and, and with a lot of austerity that we've seen over the last 10 years, aren't relying on the state for the, tam- the same type of welfare. Um, they have created regeneration outcomes by improving buildings, the, the, the public environment, the public realm, um, and, and they've given people a chance to get back into work. And, and, and we've seen significant changes in Belfast, and a lot of that's been really good, inward investment a new growth economy coming in particularly in um, high growth sectors like IT, back office finance legal and indeed tourism places like Titanic Quarter are emblematic emblematic of that and that's that's great but that economy is not touching down in inner North Belfast where it is the social economy and the social enterprises that are often the only type of economic activity we see in places like that
0: So there's a sense in which it's uh, it's very much a grassroots it's led by the people themselves from the grassroots rather than being sort of flown in from elsewhere, so to speak. And,
3: um, yeah, the the best examples here are bottom-up. They they respond to defiant needs. The most durable and scalable social enterprises are ones that have started in response to a community saying, look, we, we need something here. We're not tolerating our conditions, and we want to organise ourselves to... to um, try and develop our own economic future in a different way, to include young people, to, to give women returning to work a, a chance to, to provide better services for our community. Um, and, and for that reason, a lot of them remain small, undercapitalised, they face significant barriers in, in growing their business. Uh, but, but it's not by any means inevitable. Uh, some of the biggest social enterprises on the planet started from very small communities. One example that's often quoted is the Mondragon organization in Spain, Mondragon is a village of about 7,000 people, it's it's smaller than Cookstown. The Mondragon Corporation is, is now one of the top 10 businesses in Spain, it operates in 100 wor- hundred countries across the, the globe, it, it actually owns plant here in, in, in Belfast, it's in nanotechnology, it's in finance, um, it's in real estate of course, but it also has its own bank, mm-hmm. it has its own university, Uh, And it's it's all based on a cooperative model, and it's no surprise that the Basque country um, is one of the most stable economies in in the world. It is one of the most advanced economies in the world. GDP is twice that of the United States, it's higher than that in Germany. It's Gini coefficient, that's the inequality you get between rich and poor, is remarkably low. So even though these things may start from the bottom, if you build the right enabling environment, a lot of them, evidenced by places like the Basque Country and Quebec, can grow and scale and replicate into being a major set of businesses and a genuine alternative economy to what we're seeing in terms of the private sector and the way it's been going over the last 10 years. I
0: suppose that uh, brings me to the idea, what is it that that governments, local, regional, national can do to help to foster these? Because it's obviously it sounds like a good model, it sounds like it could potentially help to transform local neighbourhoods and have the economy the the money that's generated circulating within the neighborhood rather than being sent off overseas or whatever so is there any way that uh, local governments for example can help to foster that and encourage it
3: Yeah, that's the fundamental point here and one of the good things about our research is we have been able to look at and bring back some of these models or examples of best practice. Not not that you can grab them from very different contexts and and lock them down into conditions around Belfast or Northern Ireland, Um, but all the evidence shows, and I think certainly in terms of the demand here from the surveys, research and case study that we've done, is there's three priorities. One is the regulatory environment. We don't have the type of legislation they even have across in the rest of Britain. For example, we don't have community asset transfer that would give social firms and community businesses access to asset or nil or nominal value, land, buildings, property owned by the state. We don't have social value clauses that give us preferential access to public procurement by social enterprises and cooperatives. Um, and, and, and we don't ha- uh, have the type of status of social enterprises that they would have, for example, in Emilia Romano or in the Basque Country. So we expect these businesses to be entrepreneurial and to make all this money, but we treat them when it comes to the regulation as if they're charities. And, and, and so they, they, they get caught in this trap between the social and the enterprise. They have to deliver all the social benefit. But they also have to be economically viable and look like a business other areas have got around that by creating an environment in which um, those sorts of business models can be defined differently supported differently get tax advantages get access to preferential investment and so on And, and that's the second thing they need like all businesses cash and they need both debt in other words special types of loans but they also need grant aid if government is funding this to buy some social return, and, and I think social enterprises should be capable of explaining and valorising what a funder gets out of them, if they're doing that, they, they, they should pay for it and pay a fair price for it. So we need a mix of grant and debt structured in a way that suits the particular conditions of social enterprises. Sometimes this is called patient capital, where it's a bit of grant, you get free money, it's a bit of loan, but it's in preferential terms. And we need to create the financial and investment environment that isn't just suited to small businesses, but is suited to the particular needs of social enterprises. And the third thing is skills. We, we have a very, good, a very good set of examples of fairly high capacity, well organised social enterprises with, with a lot of multiple social, economic and environmental value. Um, the number of people, the number of entrepreneurs running those things and the skill sets they need are, are quite particular. And and we don't have much investment in the type of social enterprise leader that we will need in the future. The skill sets to run a business is very different than the skill sets to run a community organisation. And we need to invest in that. We need to invest in training, in advanced education, the way they have done in Canada, and in research. And, and, and the way in which academic research can you know bring best practice and knowledge, challenge the sector locally, but train up social enterprises, is, is again also a, a gap in, in our market. There isn't one quick fix. There's a whole set of things that are missing in a Northern Ireland context. And we're in conversation with government and with other funding agencies to see, can we get part of the kit in place here that seems to have allowed the social enterprise sector to grow in other places? And that is a big challenge because when you do that, these social enterprises seem to, to accelerate and multiply their value in a way that, that a private business simply wouldn't in disadvantaged areas. That
0: uh, sounds excellent. It sounds as though you have, uh, well, the next phase of your work is sort of set out before you. And obviously, uh, you've done a lot of work in this area already, but I, I assume you're going to keep going in that area. What, what comes yeah. next?
3: Yeah, we've we've just received funding, um, oddly enough, from the Swedish Research Council for for a partnership between ourselves at Queen's, Lund and Uppsala universities um, in Sweden. And and what we're interested in there is, it's a project that's looking at at Northern Ireland, um, the Ivory Coast, Lebanon and um, Kosovo. Uh, Why does violence continue um, after peace agreements have been signed? And in Northern Ireland, our bit of this is violence has continued, and it has in disadvantaged areas. And in, in some places, paramilitary violence, racketeering, crime have all increased, particularly in loyalist communities. And it's because those areas tend to be left behind economically. If you take Belfast, for example, we've seen segregation between Catholics and Protestants decline dramatically. We've seen a new cosmopolitan landscape in Titanic Quarter. Um, and in the riverfront, the University of Ulster bringing their campus into the north of the city in the cathedral quarter. We've seen a renaissance, Belfast, propelled by a new economy that's concentrated in growth sectors, in which our university and, and Ulster have played a significant role. Finance, back office, animatronics, you know, all of those things are, are, are bringing in new value. Um, that is causing social and spatial mobility in a way that we haven't seen before. But it is not touching down in north and west Belfast and in the poorest neighbourhoods. So peace there doesn't contain the same value as it does for, for other parts. And, and in Belfast, we've, we've called this almost a twin speed city. We've got this good cosmopolitan titanic city. And then we've got the city that has not moved on that much since the conflict has ended. And more violence is still a resource, particularly for those outside these economic circuits. So what we're looking at with our friends in Sweden is how does the economy play a role in the maintenance of violence? And how in a society like ours does a particular type of economy, the social economy and social enterprises, build pathways or roots out of violence and its rationalities, why it's still there, particularly in the poorest neighbourhoods. And, and we're seeing this evidenced across the, the, the cities that we're looking at and the countries that we're looking at is that the economics of peace and in the next round of peace funding that's coming here uh, between 2020 and 2027, we, we would like to see economic development and support for the economy of areas left behind by the peace process being a major plank of what they're trying to do.
0: It sounds as though the uh, social and solidarity economy is, more than, is obviously more than about the economy. It spills over into all sorts of other areas, which is very encouraging. I look forward to hearing more of the results of your future research so Dr. Brenton Murdoch. Thank you very much. Thank you now. Find out more about the social charter at our website qub.ac.uk/social-charter.